0: This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, we have Greg Bice, an expert on public health preparedness and response to discuss the fast-moving coronavirus. Also, I'll talk about potential winners, losers, and political outcomes from COVID-19. Where is this disease going? Let's find out in The Nexus. Greg Weiss serves as Gap Solutions Vice President for Scientific and Technical Programs, overseeing mission-critical public health preparedness and response work in support of CDC, FDA, HHS, ASPR, and throughout the DOD, as well as specialized research and development support to NIH and Joint Program Executive Office for Chemical and Biological Defense. GAP Solutions provides situational awareness, coordination, and planning activities and 24-7, 365 response operations following public health emergency or disaster events. And from 2010 to 2015, Greg served as a Senior Program Manager at HHS ASPR, managing a team of 85 public health, emergency management, and scientific subject matter experts. In 2014, Greg served as Special Assistant and Liaison to the CDC during that year's Ebola outbreak. Prior to that, Greg served as a Special Assistant and special and Senior Policy Analyst to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs, predominantly advising on health and force health protection policies and programs. Greg Bice, welcome to the Nexus.
1: Very happy to be here.
0: The topic on everyone's mind is COVID-19, the coronavirus. How is the government doing in its attempts to manage the spread of this pandemic?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to realize is that at the federal government level, you're dealing with a complex, multifaceted response involving a number of different um, departments and centers um, who are working in coordination across a number of different functions and areas to um, protect the American people uh, and, and limit and prevent the, the spread of the disease. Um, as you probably know, and, and most of the listeners on the phone know, uh, last week, HR 6074 was passed, um, which was an $8.3 billion emergency funding measure specifically to combat the coronavirus. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it is it is an enormously complex and involved response effort.
0: And I mean, are they, as far as you can tell, succeeding at this point? Is it too soon to tell? Or, or is there a, a lag that's happening that is um, problematic?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know th- there are there are successes and failures that are happening um, within within each uh, federal government agency tap to, to lead the response. Um, you know at the at the forefront of the federal government's response is is Health and Human Services, um, and specifically within Health and Human Herb Services, you have the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, the ASPR, um, which is led by a gentleman named uh, Dr. Bob Cap. So he's in charge of coordinating all of the, the department's coronavirus response efforts, and you know, Dr. Cadlick is somebody who has worked in this field for for decades. Um, I think that he is doing I think that he is doing a very very good job um, and performing the leadership functions um, that are asked of him. Um, but there are gaps, you know. Uh, take for example, you know the Strategic National Stockpile, which is, is, is housed within the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Preparedness and Response. Um, and what we're starting to see is there are some limitations on, on what is in the stockpile. You're talking about a, a $7 billion repository of um, medical countermeasure products, but it looks like we're lacking in um, N95 respirators and, and surgical masks. Um, roughly 1% of the estimated 3.5 billion that the nation may need uh, in the event that a severe pandemic were to occur. So again, is that, is that, is that a failure? I, I, I wouldn't say so. I think that everybody is doing what they can. Um, but I think the nature and extent of this response is, is, is really pushing some of the li- limitations at the federal government level.
0: And let's dwell on that a little bit, the limitations. I mean, obviously, we don't know when a pandemic is going to happen. We don't know when viruses sort of uh, emerge. But for the lay person, the average person, we wonder, does the government prepare for this?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, so I, so I think that um, that is the that is the role and responsibility of of HHS Asper, Uh and the Strategic National Stockpile um, and also um, an entity called the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority. We love acronyms in government, of course. <laughs> um, that that is that is uh, referred to as as HHS BARDA. Um, and what BARDA does is they pursue advanced research and development. Through licensure of things like diagnostics, vaccines, and medicines, such as you know therapeutics or antivirals, you know obviously, you know to, to the lay person, a seven billion dollar repository would sound like um, quite a large investment from a preparedness standpoint. Um, but the federal government, you know, is beholden to um, funding requirements, and you know a, a lot of times it depends upon what is the appetite. Um, on the Hill and in the public for for these types of dollars to be, these types of preparedness dollars to be spent. Obviously, right now, I think, you know, folks would say, well, why on earth do we not have, you know, 3.5 billion N95 respirators? But what folks need to understand is that is a tremendous um, cost. So how do you strike that proper balance between um, adequately preparing for the range of all-hazard threats but also not be. Um, how would I put it? How, spending money that where there's you know there's not a there's theoretically not a great return on those on those taxpayer dollars.
0: Right, right. Understood. Um, taking a step back, as you've been able to observe things in the last couple of weeks, what is the intensity level like in the administration right now dealing with this?
1: Yeah, I mean, so so, Gap Solutions currently is supporting the the coronavirus response, most specifically um, at NIH NIAID, um, some of the early research and development, um, and and also on the front lines in support of uh, the Centers for Disease Control and HHS ASPER. Um, I would say that the op tempo in those areas is is high. I mean, folks are folks are aware that. That, you know, a, a, a pandemic is upon us. I mean, it's fortuitous that we've had this call today. Um, you know, the WHO officially declared this uh, officially declared this a pandemic. You know, I mean, the number of U.S. infections has topped a thousand. We have one hundred twenty thousand cases worldwide in, gosh, I think almost one hundred and fifteen different countries. So, um, folks are very, very aware of of, of what's. It- Stake here, um, and and they are they are putting in the they are putting in the the effort. Obviously, the, the role and responsibilities um, for each federal government entity are 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 quite different and 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 specialized.
0: Right, right. Um, but it sounds like there's there's a mission critical sense to what's going on that people are no longer, if they were at all taking this
1: lightly you know I, I i i've worked with with these folks throughout the entirety of my career and and you know these are these are um these are patriots these are people who who live and breathe this world and i don't think any of them you know ever ever took it took it lightly um i think you know obviously the the coverage has ramped up for any number of different reasons within the last few weeks but you know, the folks at, at, at Asper and, and CDC and the Department of Homeland Security, I think that, that they were aware and, and have been aware of, of what's at stake, and, and they're doing everything that they can to, um, you know, limit the, limit the spread and, and protect American lives.
0: Now, I realize that you're not an epidemiologist and, you know, don't see the virus that way, but do you have a sense why there's more of a panic this time? Than in other pandemics like SARS or bird flu or the things that we've heard over the last ten to fifteen years.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think there's a couple of reasons. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think that there. This is the first pandemic that has sparked a coronavirus. Uh, excuse me, the first pandemic that has been sparked. The first uh, coronavirus that has sparked a pandemic, excuse me. Yes. Uh, so in that sense, it's novel, right? Um, I think that there's also um, a lot of misinformation that's, that's going on out there that in turn is, is sparking um, kind of unnecessary, unnecessary panic. And I think there's a lot of disinformation. I mean, just look at, you know, how many, there are 15 million U.S. flu cases this year. Right. So 124,000 cases of this disease, certainly not to be taken lightly, um, certainly not to be taken lightly. But at the same time, I think it's important for us to, to put it in context and, and, and to truly understand the, the disease's profile, you know, and, and who is most at risk. And, and furthermore, understanding that, that perhaps the most essential piece of this effort is non-medical and focused on things that individuals can do to prevent the spread of disease, avoiding close contact with people who are sick, avoiding touching your eyes, nose and mouth, staying home when you're sick, you know, things like that, disinfecting, you know, objects and surfaces. Um, I think it's, I think it's really, really important that we realize that for the vast majority of people, the symptoms will be mild and moderate. And, And I think that there are not enough individuals who are, are coming out and and, and saying that um, at a national platform. You know, only one in seven patients is going to develop severe complications, often indicated by, you know, difficulty breathing. Um, so anyway, I think that there's... Uh, what is different about this? I think there's a lot of misinformation. I think there's a lot of unknowns. Um, and, you know, I think the other part of it that's important is it's, it's being coupled by... Um, you know the United States entering into, you know what effectively is a is a bear market, you know, um, at least for you know the Dow Jones,
0: right. And let me pursue that a little bit. I mean, when we've talked a little bit about about government, I want to know what kind of effect you think the coronavirus will have on businesses.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that you know we talk about um, the risk. To to individuals and, and understanding what your your you know your risk profile is, I think that, that businesses very much need to do need to do the same thing. Um, they need to understand um, how this disease and this and this disease spread is going to affect their businesses and the individuals working for their businesses and and adapting responsibly. You know, I mean, obviously businesses like airlines, cruises, hotels, restaurants, stores. Are, are going to be the on the front line of those that are are hardest hit. Those businesses relying on, you know, the import of Chinese goods, for example. Um, but one of the things that's been really fascinating, and and I am no economist, but you know, you look at the stock market losses that have been attributed to the coronavirus, and the the losses are broad. Twenty nine of thirty stocks in the Dow suffered losses today. All eleven sectors of the S and P, even traditional safe havens, things like real estate, utilities, energy, have been hard hit. Um, I think the thing that concerns me the most is is the small businesses, you know, the, the, the companies with t- tight profit margins, um, just enough people on staff, really can't handle individuals, you know, being unavailable for two weeks at a time. Um, and I think you're starting to see... Uh, a focus on that both at the federal level and at the state and city level to make sure that some of those, the, the, those core small businesses in the United States, you know, that they don't go under as a result of this.
0: Right. Right. I guess what I am so baffled by, to be honest with you is if this is something that is not, having, um, a large fatality rate and a small percentage wind up having severe issues with this. Um, I just wonder if, um, is this one of those things like Franklin Roosevelt said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Is that is, is that a kind of
1: situation that we're in are people overreacting to this yeah I mean I think that there's I, I think that there's certainly an aspect of that I mean but but at the same time I, I do think um, the disease has spread rapidly it does pose a high risk for individuals over 60 um, with you know pre-existing conditions things like hypertension diabetes cardiovascular disease etc I mean I think we Again, it's so important to understand, you know, what are the populations that are the, that are the most at risk? And again, taking logical, reasonable steps to protect those, to protect those, those populations. Um, is it an overreaction? I think so. I think it's, it, it is time for us to, to, to focus on the, the tangible things that businesses, individuals, and government can do. Um, to protect themselves and, and their workforce.
0: Now, I know you don't have a crystal ball or anything of that nature, but is there any sense of a timeline for the duration of this pandemic as far as you've heard from experts?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and again, I, 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 I would defer to, to the epidemiologists at, at CDC. Um, there does not appear to be, at this moment, uh, a seasonality associated with the disease um, insofar as it's it's not affected by things like um, temperature. Um, so uh, again, I think we we don't know. Uh, I do know that you look at China, you look at the United States, and I, I think the good news is, is that things are getting better by the day. Um, I think that the, the single most important thing that's really been born out here, and and one of the the major issues, as I've seen it, is testing, right? Um, making sure going forward that the the parameters for testing are available, and that that test kits are available to labs to be able to conduct testing more effectively. Um, the shortages in test kits, I think was one of the, the failures that occurred early on. Um, and, and that was, I, I think, it, at least in my opinion, I think that that, that exacerbated fears. Um, and I think it also resulted in, in unnecessary spread of the disease insofar as individuals who were um, infected with the disease and symptomatic and spread it without necessarily knowing um, that they were infected with the disease.
0: And when you say there was a failure, who is to blame for that? <laughs>
1: it's a good question. <laughs> it, 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 no, it's a really good question. I mean, I, you know, I, think, um, I think we should have opened up the aperture. The federal government should have opened up the aperture for hospitals and, and public health laboratories to get test kits that would allow analysis more, more quickly, um, and most importantly, closer to the point of care, right? The, ideally, you have you have tests that can offer results in, in a few hours. If, on the other hand, the specimens need to be sent to commercial labs, you know, oftentimes, you're talking about three or four days. Um, I think the other thing that we need to focus on going forward and and again I'm a I'm a preparedness and response guy right every time you have a situation like this you need to learn about what to do better in the in the future um, i think one of the other difficulties that we've seen is that each state county healthcare providers often has its own policy on who will receive the test some have limited it to only those at risk of severe disease so that's a problem if not everyone who has signs of COVID-19 is tested, that's a public health dilemma. I mean, they often refer to that as ration testing. Um, my, my I, Obviously, you want a situation in which anyone who has a reasonable chance of being infected with the disease, they should be tested, period.
0: Now, I'm not sure if you've studied this or not, but certainly the headlines this week are... Uh, uh, stunning in the sense of the entire nation of Italy is not allowed to travel. What do you think about that? And is anything remotely like that possible here in the United
1: States? Yeah. I mean, again, I think that, you know, the the risk profiles for for individuals, the risk profiles for businesses, the risk profiles for countries, they're different. Um, You know, Italy is a country um, as, as is much of Western Europe with, um, an aging population, um, who are, you know, particularly at risk for the disease. Um, they made the strategic decision to essentially quarantine in place for the whole country. Um, it is, it is staggering in the sense that we have not seen that before. Um, I do not envision that that is going to happen in this country. For any number of different reasons, namely, um, I believe that that the federal government's response efforts and the efforts that are being done at state and local health departments um, will prevent that from from being being necessary.
0: Does the government have the right to shut down? commercial air travel. I know they did during 9-11. I mean, in this kind of case, could they invoke something like that again?
1: So there have been back and forth associated with what type of discretion the federal government would have over commercial entities like airlines. It's a, it's a similar question to, um, what rights does the federal government have to, to quarantine individuals uh, who could potentially, you know, spread the disease to, to others? Um, it, ultimately, in those cases, the federal government is going to have to weigh um, the, the risks and benefits associated with, with doing so. Obviously, I think that that would be um, a measure of last resort the last thing we want to do is, is send a a shock to a critical system like the, the airline industry. Um, I I also just don't see that being, I don't see that being necessary Um, in terms of whether or not the federal government has the legislative authority to shut down a commercial enterprise or industry such as the airline industry. um, Not an attorney don't know. (laughs) um but yeah i'd imagine if i imagine if it came to a certain point um that those authorities could be you know could be put in place again that's conjecture though
0: sure sure of course um what now obviously we're in a uh presidential election and some of the candidates have thoughts about this have you heard any policies or, um, disaster response initiatives from any of the presidential candidates that sound interesting to you?
1: You know, I'll be honest with you. Um, we've been, we've been pretty involved with, uh, response efforts. I, I think, uh, have not paid as, as, as close attention to the, um, At least the way that that Biden or Sanders have been been talking about the response. I know there's been a lot of discussions recently about um, closing down some you know planned large gatherings and events, and I think um, in a lot of instances those those decisions made a tremendous amount of sense. Um, I think what will be very interesting is how the electorate views Trump v. Sanders v. Biden. In terms of their their bona fides from a response standpoint, um, we always say you don't want to be the president during a bad economy, you don't want to be the president during you know a response that is not under control, you know, and so I think that the this White House, depending upon where things stand in November, if things are not more under control, then I think that it could be um, that could negatively impact them um during the election i think one of the benefits that biden has um is and obviously the the nature and scope of the response was was so very different but you know uh biden was quite involved um during the 2013-2014 um ebola response which as i mentioned you know couldn't be more different in a lot of ways than this um but i think that there is a perception um, among the American people, that that was a response that was relatively well handled. Um, so I would I would anticipate that he will benefit from that um, that background.
0: So interesting you've brought that up because um, I have not heard Vice President Biden mention that once. In I'm following his campaign very closely uh, yet, and I say yet because I know he is scheduled to have a a major address on coronavirus any day now and uh, maybe by the time listeners hear this podcast but in in at the time of this taping I have not heard it yet but it would be very interesting for him to tout that because I recall that being something that caused a large amount of panic for a short time I don't remember any real cases in the United States I know that there were some but in terms of um, coronavirus, it didn't have Ebola, didn't have that kind of uh, scope or anything like that. But, but it was also a thing where, correct me if I'm wrong, if you contracted Ebola, you pretty much died. So, which is not happening with, with coronavirus for the vast majority of, of patients. Is,
1: is are those accurate? Um, well you know what was well what was interesting about Ebola is the, the the fatality rate associated with Ebola in in Africa was quite a bit higher than the fatality rate that we saw in the United States um, and there were so many different reasons for that um, mostly associated with um, higher standards of care in the United States um, the the most individuals who who ended up you know contracting the disease um, ended up, Surviving uh, in the United States now, you know, in in Africa, that was you know obviously not the case. I think, um, but as I mentioned, you know, the the diseases were were very very different. It's a double edged sword when you're dealing with a, a, a disease like coronavirus because, as I mentioned, the majority of the individuals present with you know mild to moderate symptoms that's the one edge of the sword it's it's positive you know if, if um, in insofar as most of those patients are going to recover and they're going to recover quite quickly that the issue from a public health standpoint is related to the spread right if individuals are presenting with with mild conditions um, you know perhaps maybe they just think it's a you know less severe common cold they're more likely to you know to be out in public um, be within sort of that six-foot Radius, um, you know, infect other individuals around them. So, again, I think that that from a public health standpoint, it it, it makes the the coronavirus response that much more complicated.
0: Hmm. Interesting stuff. Um, is there anything I'm missing in in what we've been talking about in terms of preparedness and responses, or or points that you wanted to? get across at this time
1: no i mean i i think that i think it's important for for folks to to realize um you know that this is a whole of government effort that nih and nih niad and the centers for disease control and prevention and the food and drug administration and hhs asper that you know they are they are leading this this response um and and i think you know and again I've, I've, i've 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 already said this, but I think one of the things that's, that's so important for, for folks to, to realize and to think about are just the things that you can do at every different stage, understanding best prevention um, or how best to prevent the, the disease. Those things that I, that I talked about before about avoiding close contact with people who are sick and avoiding, you know, touching your, your eyes, nose, and mouth. But I, I think it's a, I think it's a step further than that, right? It's, um, understanding what symptoms look like, understanding what that symptom profile looks like that, you know, symptoms appear two to 14 days after exposure. The symptoms are very, very clear. They're fever, dry cough, headache, shortness of breath being one of the most, um, if you are experiencing, uh, and have tested positive for coronavirus and have shortness of breath, you should seek medical advice almost immediately. Um, and, you know, I think, and then also taking it a step further down that trajectory, understanding, you know, if you become sick, um, to, to make sure that you and you're mildly ill, making sure that you stay home and, and stay away from others. Um, basic, uh, public health principles and what we can do individually. I, I just think that that is something that we need to to continue to say over and over again um, because ultimately that's what's going to stop the, the spread of this disease.
0: And that is very sound, excellent advice and a good place to stop. Um, thank you, Greg Bice from App Solutions. Very much appreciate your insights and thank you again for joining me in the Nexus.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: And we will be right back. What is going on with the coronavirus? On one hand, it seems to me like people are greatly overreacting. But if this is shutting down commerce from Asia to North America to Europe, then it doesn't matter if it's a virus or a hangnail. This must be taken seriously. Our gut feeling is that the coronavirus will end or peter out in a couple months' time. Why? Because that's when flu season ends and things get warmer and we can't really not travel in the summer, right? After listening to Greg Bice, I would say wrong. There's no telling when COVID-19 will end, and now I'm thinking it could be a permanent part of our lives, like colds are. President Trump said he believed the virus would be gone by April, which is great since I want to start traveling again. But now I'm truly wondering if this will be a lingering concern during campaign season in the fall. Can you imagine talking about coronavirus six, seven months from now? I'm tired of it already. All kidding aside, you're seeing how rapidly the economy is collapsing from just several weeks of this mania. Imagine nine months of this. If that's the case, I don't see how President Trump gets reelected. The president's big selling point is his stewardship of the economy. With all the baggage he brings to the job and I think even diehard conservatives would admit that he has baggage, if you take strong economy out of the picture, it's hard to imagine the reason to re-elect this president. Yes, we are a tribal society now, and this election is going to be close no matter what, but there are still swing voters out there who are serious-minded and pay attention to these things. If Vice President Biden is the nominee and with the record of competency as demonstrated with handling Ebola, as Greg Bice pointed out, that may make the Democrat more attractive to impressionable voters. Remember when candidate Barack Obama was seen to be steadier than John McCain during the financial crisis in 2008? I'm wondering if we will see those same issues again this fall. I hope not. I definitely do not miss the pain of the 0809 Great Recession that caused on this country, but the parallels from then to now are becoming more striking by the day. We're officially in a bear market and there is no end in sight to the coronavirus and therefore no end in sight to the financial harm that is in full swing. Objectively, this can't be good news for President Trump. But remember, the president is a wily marketer and salesman. There is China to blame and Nancy Pelosi and the deep state CDC. And you know what? He might be right. Trump certainly didn't bring the virus here himself, and the last thing he wants is a pandemic. And the president's interest in financial stimulus, payroll tax relief, and paid sick leave are admirable qualities in the midst of a crisis. So he may not get blamed for coronavirus overall, provided that it goes away by summer, as we all hope it will, and we can get back to our barbecues, plane trips, concerts, and beach going. If it doesn't, Americans are going to look to someone to blame. As President Harry Truman once said about being the man in the Oval Office, the buck stops here. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and is produced by Colin Martin. Special thanks to Greg Schaefer. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. Thank you for listening.
1: Wash your hands and be well.